One of my favorite novels uh, is a novel by Alexander Dumas called The Count of Monte Cristo. It's a really good book. There's multiple movies that have been made, none of which are any good. The books are definitely better. So I would recommend that you read the book. It's, a, it's about a young man named Edmond Dante, who's a sailor and is engaged to a beautiful young woman named Mercedes. And very early in the novel, a couple of men who are jealous of Edmund conspire to have him arrested and thrown into prison, even though he's done nothing wrong. And they get together and they hatch their plot. And on the night of the dinner to celebrate his engagement to this woman, the police knock on his door and enter into the party as it's going on and arrest him and eventually put him in jail where he remains for some time. And he's completely taken aback and surprised, as you might imagine, that this is happening to him. And uh, Dumas recounts for us what he feels when he finally enters into the prison cell and realizes he's going to be here for quite a while. Here's what he writes about Dante. He says, all of his emotion burst forth. He cast himself on the ground, weeping bitterly and asking himself, what crime had he committed that he was thus punished? The day passed in that way. He scarcely tasted food, but walked around the cell like a wild beast in its cage. Now, that actually is a reaction that makes a lot of sense. If you have been arrested and imprisoned for a crime that you didn't commit. That's what Jesus is experiencing in John chapter 18. He's being arrested. He's being soon, he's soon to be executed for a crime that he didn't commit. But Jesus's reaction to his arrest in these verses is starkly different than the reaction that Edmund Dante had in The Count of Monte Cristo, or to the reactions that you or me would likely have if something like that were to happen for us. Yet Jesus' arrest is unjust. Jesus is is arrested on trumped-up charges. It's a surprise to many of those who were around him when he's arrested. But what John makes clear in these verses is that this is not a surprise to Jesus. It's not a surprise to him at all. He knows exactly what's happening. And Jesus, of all the people in this story, is the one who shows the most composure and control throughout the entire situation. What's going on here? Well, John is doing what he's been doing throughout this gospel. He is painting a picture for us of who Jesus Christ really is. And he's asking you, the reader or the hearer of the story this morning, not just to sort of take in these words as an interesting story, but to consider the question in your own life, who is Jesus? What do I think of Jesus? And so as we encounter Jesus this morning in his arrest, the day before he dies on the cross, we continue to see that Jesus is the king. He's the true king. He's full of grace and truth. Now, we're moving to the end of John. We've got four weeks left. On June 3rd, we'll conclude our study of John. And um, we've just finished Jesus' farewell discourse in chapters 14, 15, and 16. And then last week, Alan taught on Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. And here, beginning in John 18, we move to what's called his passion or his suffering. He's arrested. He's charged 
He's brought before the high priest. He's brought before Pilate. He's crucified. He dies and he is buried before he raises from the dead in victory. That's what these last few chapters of John are about. And remember, John was one of the eyewitnesses to all of these things. He was there and saw these things happening. And so we can trust his account to be authentic. What we read here is a story of what has really happened and it changed the world. So as we think this morning together about the arrest of Jesus, I want to summarize it like this for us. Here's the main idea. Jesus defends his people and defeats all of his and our enemies. That's the point. Jesus defends his people and defeats all of his and our enemies. Let me lay out three points for you by way of an outline. First, we'll see the enemies of Jesus. Second, the name of Jesus. And then lastly, the cup, the cup of Jesus. Enemies, name, cup. First, look at the first couple of verses of chapter 18. We see the enemies of Jesus. In verse 1, Jesus has finished speaking the farewell discourse and finished praying. And he and his disciples minus Judas at this point, leave the place they've been and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And John tells us in verse 2 that Jesus often met there with his disciples. And it's here that the enemies of Jesus come and betray him and arrest him. And in these verses, there are three enemies of Jesus. The first enemy is Judas. And the betrayal of Jesus by Judas deserves some sober reflection. To be honest with you, Judas in, Judas in these verses is twice called the one who betrayed him. Not the name, you, not the title you want appended to the, your name, by the way. The one who betrays Jesus, but that's what Jesus, Judas is known as. And this event gives us a window into just how personally hurtful Judas's betrayal is. Betrayal is the rupture of a close friendship or companionship, Right? And this betrayal in particular is the work of the evil one doing what he always does. He is creating enmity and lies and hatred between God and man. It's interesting that Judas betrays Jesus in a garden. A garden that Jesus and his disciples, his friends, knew well. This place is a place of communion between Jesus and his friends. It's a place of fellowship. It's a place of friendship. It's a staggering thing that Judas chooses a place of such intimacy to perform an act of such infamy. It's not at all unlike a significant betrayal that you might have experienced in your life when you feel like a friend has stabbed you in the back And they tell you about it or you discover it in a place where you have spent so much time together as friends. That's exactly what's happening here. Judas proves to be one of the enemies of Jesus. He's pretended all along to be a follower of Christ, but here he proves to be apostate, one who falls away, one who is actually his enemy. The second enemy is the band of Roman soldiers that we read about there in verse 3. Judas procured a band of soldiers. Now that word soldiers refers to a part of a cohort of Roman soldiers. Now just to give you a picture of what's happening here, there are probably about 200 soldiers entering into the garden with Judas to arrest Jesus. So it's not like a couple of beat cops who are on duty that night. It's like an army. It's 200 armed and trained men who arrive 
to arrest Jesus. Now, I want you to think about how ridiculous that is. I mean, this is like an insane amount of overkill here. It's, it's like taking a bazooka to a mosquito in one sense. Would it really take 200 armed men to arrest a Galilean peasant rabbi? Is he that dangerous? It's ridiculous, but it's actually also ironic because he is that dangerous. It's ironic because these 200 soldiers actually stand zero chance to arrest Jesus unless Jesus allows himself to be arrested. It's ironic because these men come into the garden at night carrying torches and lanterns because they can't see in the dark even though the light of the world is standing right in front of them. So Jesus' enemies are Judas, the Roman soldiers, and then a third enemy group is the officers in verse 3 that come from the chief priests and the Pharisees. These are religious soldiers, soldiers from the religious establishment, the temple guard, so to speak. And so what we see here is that the entire world is symbolically represented as in opposition to Jesus here in the garden. You have the apostate church represented by Judas. You have the world represented by the Roman soldiers. And you have the religious establishment represented by the chief priests, soldiers. And they're all an international posse that has come to get Jesus and to stand against him. What do we see here is that the world as it exists, is in opposition to God. And let me tell you something. Here's something you need to hear as a result of these verses. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Do you know that? There are people who stand with Jesus, and there are people who stand against Jesus. There's no neutrality when it comes to where you personally stand with regards to Jesus Christ. I mean, look at how John speaks of Judas there in verse 5. He says, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. That is, standing with Jesus' enemies. John's using this story to press you to answer, really, the question that they ask. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And, And the question for all of us to answer is, who is Jesus? What do you think of Jesus. That's the most important question that you'll ever be asked and that you'll ever answer in your life. And there's really only two answers. Do you see Jesus as the Son of God who came to love this world and take away this world's sin and pain? Or do you see Jesus as something less than that? Every single human who has ever lived either stands with Jesus or stands against Jesus. And the way to stand with Jesus is to trust him, as he says repeatedly in John, to believe that he is who he says he is, that he did what he came to do. And so the question that the Bible is asking you is, do you believe that? One thing we say often here is that the Bible questions you more than you question the Bible. And right now the Bible is asking you, what do you think of Jesus Christ? Are you one of his enemies or are you one of his friends. Because friends, the truth is, one day Jesus is going to return. As we just confessed in the Apostles' Creed, he's going to judge the living and the dead. He will separate all of humanity into two groups, those who are with him and those who are against him. And he's right now, through his word, summoning 
each one of us to follow him, to trust him, to commit to him. So listen. Listen to him. We see the enemies of Jesus arrive to arrest him. Secondly, we see the name of Jesus in this this story. Uh, And this is really where we begin to see that Jesus' arrest is different from normal arrests. I mean, think about this. Uh, If you're in the garden in Jesus' shoes and a huge group of soldiers arrives to arrest you and kill you, what are you likely to do when you see them coming? You're likely to do, I would guess, what the other disciples do, except for Peter. We'll talk about him in a minute. But they're going to bail. (laughs) They're going to run. They're going to try and hide somewhere deeper in the garden so as to not be found out. And you would think that that's what normal people do when they know that the authorities are coming to get them. But that's not at all what Jesus does here. Rather than running away, Jesus comes out, we see, in verse 4, and he begins to ask the questions. Here's the idea. Jesus is completely in control here. Look at what John tells us in verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, Jesus knows all that's going to happen comes forward and says, who do you seek? Who do you seek? And the soldiers don't reply with something like, hey, we ask the questions around here and then pound him with a club. They answer his question. Well, well, we're after Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus is the one calling the shots. Jesus knows exactly what's going on and he's willingly submitting to it, but he's also orchestrating it. And we see he's in full control of this scene, even more vividly in this interplay between him and these men who have come to capture him. He asks, as we've seen in verse 4 and verse 7, who do you seek? And the soldiers answer, verse 5, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And again, verse 7, we're after Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replies three times, and he simply says, I am he. Now, I hate to do this, but that's a terrible translation. The ESV gets it wrong. If you have a different translation, you might have it slightly differently. But what Jesus says is simply this, I am. He says, I am each time. And if you've been with us through our studies of John, you've seen that that's something Jesus says regularly. He uses that phrase, I am, to refer to who he is and to why he came. For example, back in John chapter 8, He's in a debate with the religious leaders about who are truly the sons of Abraham. And he says to them, he pulls no punches. He says, you're not children of Abraham, you're children of the devil. I'm the one that is from the father and knows the father. And they're like, how could you know Abraham? You weren't even born when Abraham died. And he says, before Abraham was, what? I am. And you know what they do? They try to kill him right then and there, John 8, 58. So that phrase, I am, is a clear reference to divinity. I am is the name that God gives to himself in the Old Testament. If you read the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, a very famous story when Moses is on the mountainside and he sees the bush that is burning, but it doesn't burn up. And he approaches the bush and he hears a voice call out from the bush that says, take off your sandals, the place you're standing on is holy ground. And God, appearing via this burning bush, has a conversation with Moses and he calls Moses to go and speak in the name of God to Pharaoh to free Israel from the Egyptian bondage that they're in. And Moses says to the bush at one point, 
When I go and tell Israel, hey, follow me, who am I supposed to say sent me? What's your name? And God says in Exodus 3, tell them, I am has sent me to you. And so Jesus is saying, I am. He's referring to himself very clearly as the God of the Old Testament, the one true and living God. That's his name. That's the name of Jesus. And look at what happens when he says, I am he, the first time, verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the grounds. What? Jesus says his name, and his name literally floors them. Hundreds of them. Because the name of Jesus Christ has power. The name of Jesus Christ carries with it authority. Jesus here could be saying something like we read in Psalm 27. Listen to what Psalm 27 two says. When evildoers come at me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies themselves stumble and fall. Who's in control here? It's the man who's being arrested. Because he is no mere man. He is I am. He is the eternal self-existent God of all things. He made these soldiers. These soldiers are lucky that Jesus just put them on the ground. He could have put them under the ground with a snap of his finger. This is the one who made the universe. He flung the stars into space. He holds an infinite number of galaxies in the palm of his hand. This is the one to whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the king. This is God. And he shows that here. These soldiers thought they'd have to ferret out some fleeing peasant carpenter, but they don't have to search for him. He comes out and he confronts them. Jesus' name has authority. And lastly, I want you to see verse 8 on this second point, that Jesus shows his authority and he uses his authority to care for and defend his people. Verse 8, Jesus says again, I told you I am, so if you seek me, if you're after me, let these men go. And that's not, you know, a suggestion that Jesus is making here. Jesus isn't sort of like plea bargaining. Jesus is commanding and ordering these men. Let these guys go. Again, it recalls Exodus, doesn't it? Just like I am in Exodus told Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go. So I am here personally tells all of his enemies, let these people go. And what happens? They do it. They obey. He commands hundreds of armed men and the armed men reply by doing what he bids them to do. The disciples are confused and they're afraid and they're worried, but Jesus isn't. Jesus is sovereignly and lovingly protecting them to his own peril. That's why John tells us in verse 9 that this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. That's an immediate application of what Jesus just prayed in John 17. That's where that quote comes from. And so John's saying Jesus immediately began to do what he promised to do. So Jesus' name has power and authority, and Jesus is, is using his power and authority to protect and care for his people. That's what's going on in this story. And I want you to remember that. I want you to think about that and reflect on that right now. Do you know that this is true? Jesus is not going to lose you. Do you know that? 
Jesus is going to protect you. Even when he is being arrested. When he's being dragged out of the garden. When he's being tried before the high priest and before Pilate. When he's being beaten to a pulp and hung on a cross and mocked and spit on, and when he's being killed and buried in the ground, even then, Jesus is going to protect you. Even in his humiliation and suffering, Jesus cares for you and defends you. In fact, it is through his suffering and humiliation that he defends you. That's the good news of our faith. If you trust Jesus, you enter immediately and forever into the perfect and everlasting care of the one who as we said a minute ago, flung the stars into the sky and who holds the galaxies in his hand. If you trust Jesus, you enter the strong care of one who stood against an army and faced them down, who speaks a word and all his enemies drop to the ground. Jesus, Jesus is for you and with you and caring for you right now if you're one of his. Listen to how John in another of his books, Revelation, describes Jesus. I've got it on the wall, but let me just read it out loud. John later says, I saw a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Jesus comes to John and says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Listen, what is it that you're afraid of? What is it that you're afraid of right now? What is it that's keeping you up at night? Can I be honest with you? I didn't sleep hardly at all last night. I woke up and couldn't go back to sleep because my mind started spinning. This is not in the notes, but it's true. My mind started spinning and I was worrying about this and this and this and this and this. And it's strange, but when I'm doing that at 2.30 in the morning, I always envision worst possible scenarios. I don't know about you guys. I was worried. I was afraid. I was fearful. And so me reading this to myself and to you right now is a reminder that the things that plague our hearts with worry and with doubt have no power over us because Jesus Christ has conquered them. Jesus has conquered these things. Jesus came to defend you from these things, and he will. You can trust him because his name is powerful. It's the name that's above all names. We see Jesus' enemies. We see Jesus' name. And then lastly, the cup. The cup of Jesus. I love this part of the story. Jesus is in complete control here. He's allowing himself to be taken by these soldiers. He knows what will happen. He knows what must happen. He submits to it, to arrest and to death, to forgive us our guilt and our sins against God. That's what Jesus is doing. But Peter, good old Peter, doesn't get it. He never gets it. He's a lot like us. And so Peter jumps in, verse 10, And attempts to intercede for Jesus here. And, you know, I love Peter. Because Peter represents all of us. He represents all of us in all of our foolishness, in all of our trigger-happy poor decisions, in all of our misunderstandings, in all of our faithlessness. Peter goes it alone here. And you've got to love him. He wants to be brave and defend Jesus. Think about how silly that even sounds to say. 
And he is brave here, in fact. Brave, but foolish. He doesn't think, he reacts. I'm sure none of us are like that. Why does he have a sword? You ever thought of that? What is Peter doing with a sword? He's had a sword all through the farewell discourse. Jesus is praying in the high priestly prayer in the garden, and Peter's hiding a dagger underneath his cloak. And he busts it out here. And what's he thinking? Is he going to fight 200 armed men by himself? Is he going to defend Jesus? No. You see what's going on? Peter's just like us. Peter is a complex human who in one moment is willing to take on an army and literally in just a few minutes is going to lie to a little servant girl and say, get away from me. I never knew the guy. He represents the jumble of all of our beauty and all of our brokenness in one. Here, Peter wants to be the hero. So he strikes at Malchus, the high priest's servant, and he hits his ear. Now, I find this to be a bit humorous. There's really two options here. Either Peter is so competent with the dagger that in one strike, he immediately takes off the ear. Or so incapable with the dagger that he misses the head entirely. I'll let you choose which you think it was. He was a fisherman, not a marksman, it seems like. But what does Jesus do? Verse 11, put your sword into it. You know, that's kind of how I imagine it. It's probably not how Jesus said it. I would have said, put your sword in your sheath. Peter, come on. Jesus is probably much patient, much more pa- Peter, put your sword in your sheath. Sheathe your weapon. Shall I not drink the cup? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? It's almost like he's saying to Peter, are you going to drink the cup? You willing to do this, Peter? And of course, he does ask Peter that in another text. And Peter says, sure. Because Peter has no idea. Just like we often have no idea. Jesus says, I've got to drink the cup. What he's saying to us here and what John is saying to us is that Peter here, he thinks he's fighting for Jesus. But really, in this instance, Peter is fighting against Jesus. Jesus could well have said again here what he said to Peter earlier in Matthew 16, right after the transfiguration. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You have not in mind the things of men, but, or the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus is saying, this is the way I'm fighting for you, Peter. I don't need you to fight for me. I'm fighting for you by submitting to my enemies here and not fighting them, although I certainly could. Jesus came, you see, to drink the cup. What does that mean? Listen to Leslie Newbigin. He's a theologian who writes on John. Listen to what he says. As the psalmists and prophets had said many times, quote, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and all the wicked of the earth will drain it down to the dregs, Psalm 75, 8. In the strange mercy of God, The cup of God's righteous wrath against the sin of the world is given into the hands not of his enemies, but of his beloved son. And his son will bring this cup down to its dregs until the moment comes when Jesus' cry of, I thirst, gives place to his, it is finished. Listen, the cup is the righteous justice and wrath of God poured out on human rebellion, evil, wickedness, and sin. And Jesus came to take that cup and drink it fully. He takes on himself, you see, the punishment of our evil. Jesus drinks the cup in his death 
to rescue and to protect and to defend his people. Jesus submits himself to arrest and betrayal and death because the death of Jesus is the only sacrifice that can take away your sin and your guilt and my sin and my guilt. Listen, ultimately, it's not the soldiers, it's not the religious leaders, it's not Judas who are handing Jesus over to death. It's God. God is the one handing Jesus over to death. And Jesus goes willingly. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus gets what we deserve, punishment, wrath, justice on the cross. We, instead of getting that, get what Jesus deserves, love, mercy, righteousness. He gives us what is his and he takes what is ours. That's what it means for him to drink the cup. Peter learned this. And we also have to learn this if we're going to know the way of Jesus. Because the way Jesus loves us and defends us as a king is by dying. Dying for us as a substitute. Peter learned this because he put it later in one of his letters. 1 Peter 3. Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. He didn't get it in the garden. But some years later he got it. The cup means the righteous one is taking the punishment of the unrighteous. Why? Peter tells us that he might bring us to God. You see, the arrest of Jesus in John 18 is just another instance, another window. Another window allowing us to peek into the great purpose of God in this universe and the great purpose of God in your life. The purpose of God in your life is to send Jesus to bear the punishment that your guilt and your sin merits. Not because you've done anything to deserve that, but because God is a God of love and grace and kindness, and he's displayed his kindness to you infinitely in Christ. That's why Jesus can say here, Peter, put the sword away. In a sense, he's saying that to you right now. Put your swords away. You don't have to fight through the enemies of your life and conquer your own. That's why Jesus came. He's done it for you. He did it by humbling himself to death. And he will do it again when he returns in victory. That's the kind of king he is. So do you see him in that way or not? Our prayer is that you will. Let's pray.